Welcome to Dad Talk Today. The podcast for dads facing some of the toughest moments of their lives. We are here to walk with men through divorce, keep them connected to their kids, help them understand their rights, and work for change in family law courts. Moms, you are always welcome too. We are all about advocating for shared parenting and doing what is best for our kids. Let's get started. Here is your host, Eric Carroll. Hey everybody, welcome to Dad Talk Today. I am your host, Eric Carroll. I have been looking forward to this episode and I am joined by investigative journalist, Tom Lemons. How are you doing today, Tom? Hey Eric, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Tom, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an investigative journalist on the west coast of Florida. I've been doing this for about 10 years in this area. Started out uh, doing a a local uh, independent news outlet here uh, in the West Coast, Hernando County specifically, covered covered several counties, but uh, really tried to pinpoint on the corruption that occurs in, uh, you know, little counties like this and small areas. And uh, one thing turned, developed into uh, something larger than I expected. Absolutely. And I know that's a job that uh, has many surprises that comes along with it. Uh, how long have you been doing this again? Oh, about 10 years. Mm-hmm. About 10 years. Yeah. And uh Seems like you've you've got some things that you've been hitting on here lately, and that's you know I basically said Tom, come on, I want to give you the platform. You have wrote a book called Victim Shopping One Hundred and One. Could you tell everybody a little bit about that? Absolutely. So throughout this, uh, there was one particular uh, nonprofit that I began investigating around 2013, and this nonprofit I found out was spending. Uh, it was receiving about two million dollars a year in grants. Um, to help domestic violence victims. Uh, and so I found out that there was a lot of fraud going on within the facility. And it talks about how they were altering records, uh, financial records. And turns out that about 95 to 97% of the money actually went to salaries and other fringe benefits. So when I found that out, I started to talk, you know, find out other things were going like prostitution and other criminal activities going on with the shelter. And I talk about that in the book, among other things that occurred uh, from digging into this and actually kind of backfired on me. And, and uh, I began to be attacked by these people. Talk about being attacked and how it backfired on you. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I've seen some of the videos and it would make anybody raise their eyebrows, but they tried to paint you out to be yeah. the aggressor. Talk a little bit about that, my man. Right. Well, let, let me give you just a tiny bit more uh, uh, build up to that, because you, I guess you have to understand how angry these people were. But the uh, again, since 2013, I had been posting or publishing videos and interviews. I had spoken to dozens of women who come out of this facility claiming all kinds of things that go in there, drug abuse, alcohol, batteries. Um, and they all contact me to say, hey, Tom, help me help expose this stuff. Um, then I found out about the frauds, and and now I've got several employees coming to talk to me and done interviews with them. In addition to that, law enforcement officers who've responded have contacted me and have actually done interviews with those people. So building all this up and becoming the most hated man in, in Hernando County uh, by this uh, this nonprofit, which is also was heavily tied to the the sheriff, the elected sheriff, who is a um, uh, a 
again, elected, been there two terms, and he was the president for several years of this same Don Center. And again, gives money to them. Just one big web of corruption to, to stay. Um, so the sheriff was angry with me. He was, you know, without, you know, they, they attempted all types of things. A boycott of my business, called all my sponsors. I had received death threats and, and just you name it. Uh, it. It happened to me prior to this incident. But in the book, I describe what happens is the, uh, uh, there was a, I went out to a, a local pub to have some, a few beers. And, um, you know, it's usually a very nice place. I know all the people there. And I'm sitting there talking to someone, or standing there, I should say. And I'm talking to two women. And then two other women, I'm not seeing this yet. They walk up on the other side. And I wish I had the video to show your, your viewers. But they, they start to try to push me away. I'm trying to, you know, summarize this. Uh, but to make it short, one of the women pushes me so hard that I slam on down to the ground. I hit my head on a stage. Uh, then she proceeds to pick up a bar stool and slams that on my head. Um, and then, I mean, it just goes on this entire melee. So in the end, the deputy who comes to the uh, scene, you know, I'm thinking I'm just fine, but he doesn't get any independent witnesses. The bar owner actually says, look at this video. And he's, he's the victim. Well, turns out that they arrested me. And so I was shocked to find that out. So I was charged with, you know, battery on two of the women, but I never touched. Um, the, but going further, what I've just discovered recent, recent weeks was that the deputy who arrested me was actually uh, the nephew to the present current or a former president of that same nonprofit that hated me so bad. So uh, it's just, it was really um, disheartening to see that happen and to, ha and to know that they have so much power over even the, the deputies in the area. So that's the short story for that incident. So Tom, are you saying that you had false accusations of domestic violence on you? <laughs> uh, yes, I have. Uh, and this was actually not considered domestic violence, but they uh, they figured they could really get me on this one and say, look, let's, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying in a conspiratorial way that these women knew what they were, they were, I don't think they were planning this. I think the sheriff was made aware that his, his mortal enemy, you know, me was uh, in this situation. And I think that he was in communication with the deputies and that's when they decided to do what they did. Because again, I've been, every time something's ever almost happened to me, I get calls from deputies who say, Tom, watch out. They're trying something again. And let me just go a little, uh, give you a little description so that you understand why I named the book Victim Shopping. Okay. Uh, a few months prior to that, the one of the former admins to the, the shelter, the Don Center, she and two other women who also know the sheriff, all three of these women know the sheriff uh, very well, they filed literally almost on the same day, independent separate complaints stating that I was um, harassing them, threatening them, and that they were in fear for their life. Okay, so I've never even met these women in my life, people I didn't even know. They, uh, they filed the complaints, and then deputies started calling me saying they heard it come across the radio, Tom, you're, they're filing these false complaints against you. So I'm like, oh man, so I called them and said, I want to file my complaint against these people who are filing complaints against me. 
So, so literally, this is, is it's this is you know incredible what's happening. So I get with the deputies. Now here's here's where the the term comes in. The sergeant on scene. I'm filling out my report. He, he he's aware of everything that's happening, and he tells the other deputy he says, "Is do you think the sheriff is victim shopping?" And that what that term means is the sheriff or any law enforcement officer, if they don't like somebody, they can they can uh, kind of have someone call in and make a false report about them, and then oh they'll come and arrest the person, or it'll it'll be easily. You know, they'll charge him with a false. I mean, it's no different than planting drugs on somebody or putting a gun on somebody. It's the same thing, only uh, done with people that the sheriff knows. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. At the, at the time that this happened at that bar, how much reporting on this had you done up until that point? At least, let's see, seven years or so. I mean, this, let's see, it was 2019. So, yeah, so from 2013 to 2019, I had done several video reports, interviews, and multiple written reports, among other things they go on in the county. But that was probably the biggest investigation I was involved in. So I wish I would have had a little bit more time so I could have had the video as well. But for anybody that hasn't seen it, if, if you watch the video and you can see it on YouTube, Thomas sitting at a bar, minding his own business, out of nowhere, this lady just comes, shoves him in the ground. And from what it looks like, when you stood up, you was trying to like, what's going on? And two other men grab you. Right. And, and it's like, you could tell anybody that watches that video. Unfortunately, there's that taboo around domestic violence. You was a man in altercation with a woman. You were automatically the aggressor. I'm curious how many in, in these cases that you've been doing, Tom, how many times do you see the man, the victim and the domestic violence groups actually embracing him as a victim of domestic violence? Oh, it's almost unheard of. I mean, and this is part of the problem going back to 1993 when when Joe Biden, you know, the presidential candidate right now, who uh, who basically drafted and created this law, the Violence Against Women Act. It goes the the premise behind it in the beginning and as it is now is to basically create this false belief that men are the majority of all perpetrators, vastly the majority, and that all women are the victims. And it's you know they they'll I've seen you know some agencies quoted as being ninety five percent men when I've done my own investigating at least at a small uh, at a, a microcosm here in Hernando County and found that you know it's at least fifty fifty I mean this is I mean by nature it's even common sense that people would would believe you know it, women and men are violent right they can be so when you have a relationship um, you know. But in cases, like you said, men are usually the, the villain, and uh, it, it really doesn't take much evidence, if any at all, to get a civil, let's say a civil injunction against someone, uh, and not much at all really to get a criminal charge. Absolutely. I mean, we see cases kind of like what's in the news right now with uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And uh, have you heard the, that conversation between him and her that came out? I have not heard it. Oh, wow. That was a good one. And it really kind of describes what we're going through right now, because Amber filed something against Johnny claiming that he had been the aggressor. And then in the conversation, she's like, he's like, well, Amber, you're the one that was hitting me. It's the other way around. She's like, Johnny, come on. You're twice the size of me. Who's going to believe that? You know, and it's the whole conversation's there. And it's like that is what we are going through every single day inside a family court and out in the open world. This uh 
male privilege. And for anybody, do you know, tell everybody a little bit, I don't know how much you know on about this Duluth model that the family courts are taught. So, you know, along the way, I discovered that the Duluth model, and uh, a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to tell you about a video that your, your viewers can watch it'll, where I captured some inside undercover video, uh, more, more of the audio, but of, uh, of an actual batterer's intervention program, which is based on the Duluth model. So I'll give you that information later. But the, um, the Duluth model is, is based on the wheel of, of uh, wheel of violence, I think it is, or um, I can't remember what the exact phrase is right now. But it's basically, it's really male only as far as the way they created it. It was created by uh, a group of feminists in, in, uh, in Duluth. And um, they use that model to create the batters intervention program for most states who've adopted it, which is probably 99% of them. Um, and it forces in these programs, according to this Duluth model, men are told you are, you have to say you're guilty of what you did. Now, and keep in mind too, most of these men that go to the BIP programs, most of them aren't even charged with a criminal offense. They're, it is a stipulation of an injunction in many cases. So really it was no evidence to put them there, but uh, the judge ordered it. The man's like, all right, whatever. You know, they don't know what they're in for. And they get in there and they say, you either say this or you're going to be in violation and we're going to kick you out of the group. Two things can happen from that. They can you know, violate their injunction or they could violate the uh, terms of their release from a criminal charge and be right back in jail. And, and again, that in that video that I'll tell you, that I'll uh, tell you about, there's a man in there that he's just told flat out, if you, I think you're going to get kicked out of here. And he absolutely said nothing at all to, to deserve it. Um, so that is the Duluth model. And without going into all the ins and outs of it, it is a way to just basically make them take away the masculinity of a man. Uh, and tell them that they're, they're abusive in their words, their actions, their movements, the way they comb their hair, just about anything. Absolutely. I actually found an image of it while we were talking. So this is what they call the power and control wheel from the Duluth model. There's one thing that it really catches me, especially right there to the left. Male privilege, using male privilege, treating her him like a servant, making all the big decisions, acting like the master of the castle, being the one to define men and women's role. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about what male privilege is? Yeah, well, the way they present it as male privilege is that, again, the the male in most cases is the, the commander of the house. Um, you know, the woman will be there to do the dishes and cook the dinner. The man goes to work every day and comes home. This is the you know the antiquated, um, the, the the archaic, you know, visual of the way a man is and a family is supposed to be as far as according to what they think, okay? So they're looking back in the 50s and the 40s, maybe earlier at, at how families were, and they're saying that's the way it is today. And they're saying that men still have this privilege and that they have this control over women and they need to go through this program to try to cure themselves of their male privilege. 
Absolutely. You know, as a father that hasn't seen his daughter in two years and only because I'm a dad, I'm trying to find my male privilege. I've been trying to wait for a good while. I just can't seem to get it. Maybe one day it will come to me. But I'm curious there, for many people that are watching this. There are people that have been through family court, uh, parental alienation. How does what you're talking about tie into that? It's all part of the same um, scam, I'll call it. But the uh, the parental alienation was something that it really kind of, in my opinion, uh, I'm not a, a psychologist or, or work in the mental health field, uh, but in, in my opinion, in my experience, I found that the um, a lot of cases, and this is, goes both ways, but again, because of the way the system is, is developed, the men is us are usually the ones who get the, uh, the, the, the raw end of the deal here, but it is when um, uh, uh, one of the partners who, who has children they uh, say bad things about the other person during a divorce. Uh, they lie to them. They encourage them not to go see the other person. Um, they basically do everything they can. And even if it's just, you know, simple things like I, I heard this from a, a, a psychiatrist recently, they will um, even in their in the let's say a mother is trying to keep their daughter from seeing a, a, the father. They every time the daughter would ask to see dad the mother would make a face like oh, roll the eyes. And even that small amount of action that to act like that to the child is, you know, it puts pressure on them. And it's really, in my opinion, parental alienation is absolutely abuse and should be treated that way by the courts. I agree 100%, you know, and that's, Unfortunately, we see these silver bullets shot too frequently. It's not just inside the family law courts, and I know a lot of people watching it, you know, are going through something very similar, but it's made its way to politics. It's made its way into just about every facet of life. <laughs> and, you know, that there's times where there's many people are saying once that accusation's made, it just needs to stick. We don't have to do any investigative work or um, prove it. We, we've got too many ways to prove what's going on nowadays not to do it. What are some of the implications for this domestic violence if we um, make it to where no evidence backs it up and then we just take somebody's word for it? What are, what are some of the implications we could face, Tom? It's, it's really bad. Um, I just recently did a story on uh, a, a county attorney in Texas, in, in Austin, Texas, and I'm sure you've seen this video. It's been out there for a while course never picked up by mainstream media you know uh but this was a a county attorney who was she was doing a presentation to a group of private attorneys in her district there and explaining to them how important it is to use uh domestic violence injunction as a tool to get leverage in their divorce cases uh and as a bargaining chip in in coming to a resolution i mean so, so what are the consequences? Well, if, if anyone's not familiar with them, uh, and the quick explanation is, you know, it doesn't take much burden of proof to get an injunction to start with. So uh, you, if you're served an ex parte injunction, you go to court, the, uh, the judge, and it may be a little different in, in every state. This is, I'm, I'm living in Florida, so this is the way the courts are here. But the, uh, the judge will see the, uh, will, will hold a hearing and um, within two weeks of getting the injunction. But I mean, the immediate implications are that the person served with the injunction is, is thrown out of their home. They're barred from seeing their children. Uh, it's, it's a public record. So they lose, you know, this automatically thought of as a, an abuser. 
So the, and especially for a man, it's an, it's an even worse thing because we're already, you know, villains according to the way they, they teach. So yeah, the implications can, you can lose your second amendment, right? If, if one sticks, you can't carry a firearm. You can't possess a firearm. The, um, there again, just the, the scarlet letter that just basically you're, uh, you have become a criminal, even if you haven't been criminally charged. Now, what are the penalties if you, if you violate it? And the violation could be as little as sending a text message or even uh, an accidental contact. Uh, if, the, if the alleged victim wants to have you put away or they're, you know, violate the injunction, they just got to call and say, you came to the house, you called, you sent a text, and a person can, get, can then be charged with not only, if it happens twice, it could be aggravated stalking, uh, but at the, that's a felony. So at least they would be carry, um, charged with a violating the injunction. It's a misdemeanor. And now they sit in jail until a judge feels like they want to let them out. Yeah. You know, not to go back to it, but I've I, I read a lot on the studies. And from what I've seen, one in three women by the, the, by the time their life is over will experience some form of domestic violence. Mm-hmm one out of every four men. Why are men not a part of this conversation? That is the million dollar question. You know, um, I really don't have an answer for that. That's what we're all trying to figure out. You know, you and I and, and, and hundreds, I mean, thousands of men, if not millions in the country who've gone through this, there is not a voice for us. There's, we can sit here and do a great show, you know, your uh, dad talk uh, show and, we could go on and talk to local media, but it is not politically correct for any other, even uh, regional media or, or national, to pick this up and say that, you know, men are half the victims. It's just, it just doesn't make sense to them. So unless something drastically happens, and, and uh, I don't even know what that could be, but we're going to have to, as men, we're going to have to deal with this. I don't know the answer. Why do you think the mainstream media doesn't speak more on it? Well, and this is where politics come in. And I, and, you know, I don't want to ostracize someone who is uh, a Democrat or a Republican, but because this is really uh, deeply embedded in both, both parties. But um, most of your, your left-leaning media, like CNN, MSNBC, um, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times, they are – like most topics politically right now, the, the answer is the left. It's a liberal answer. And whether it's right or wrong, it's a liberal answer. It is the wrong answer for them to say men are half the victims. And they would have women's rights activists jumping all over them. People would be fired. And you'd have uh, the influx of the cancel culture jump in, um, just like you did with the New York Times recently when the editor, one of the editors was uh, fired for publishing a, uh, a Republican's uh, editorial. And it was, it, it's just the way it is with certain media outlets. Now, uh, I think we'd even have hard t- a hard time with a, you know, a neutral or right-leaning media outlet right. because, again, it's no one wants to stick their neck out. Politicians, uh, media, nobody. Well, and that makes the question right here, so why did you? <laughs> <laughs> well... Same thing happened to me that's happened to several others, right? right. Uh, I was accused years ago of, uh, you know, a battery or uh, not really with the injunction, you know, getting the injunction. So I had the silver silver bullet hit me 
And um, uh, so the injunction was placed on, it was the injunction, the way it was written was that I was a messy house cleaner. Um, there were no, there was no evidence as far as uh, beating her. There was no uh, pictures, no independent testimony, nothing. It was just her work. I was going through a divorce. And so there you go. Uh, and it was her testimony that she was scared for her life. Um, and therefore, an injunction was put on me for three years. Uh, so I can't carry my firearm. I can't have a concealed weapons license that entire time. My rights are violated. I'm not a convicted felon, but you're treated as one. And that sticks with you forever. Um, why did I keep doing this? That started my, my real desire to look into this. And when you've had you know, since this happened to me and with the, uh, with the false arrest recently and the, uh, my business being destroyed, um, you know, with the, sh the corrupt situation I've discovered here in Hernando County, it, I'm one of those people that never gives up. And that's, I have, you know, put my agents into, into just finding out more. And thankfully, um, I am starting to, you know, turn over some leaves that are really going to expose some dirty, corrupt politics. Well, I hope so, brother. And you're not doing this under a network. This is pretty much, you're doing this independently, right? Yes. This part of it is independent. Um, I do report news for a different organization, um, but this, uh, it, it, it's legal news. So this has been something I'm used to. I do, I love to, you know, the legal um, looking into legal, you know, injustices and reporting on that. But this particular situation is my own investigation. Absolutely. You know, so um, Tom, tell us a little bit about, you know, I, I know a little bit about this and I study it and, and we talk to many other people, but what are some of the aspects of this that the general public might not know about? Well, okay. So again, trickling down from the Again, I had gone over that already, but the Violence Against Women Act and the and the funding. Well, as it gets down to communities like, uh, you know, your your small town communities uh, in her, in Florida, we have 42 uh, domestic violence shelters, and I believe almost all of them only allow men or women to uh, to stay there. Um, so this one called Dawn Center here in Hernando County. It's been around for probably since the late 80s. And they have, uh, again, told you all the, the, the controversy around it with the uh, crime. The, the neighbors have called about, you know, prostitution and drug abuse and drug dealing. Uh, but then I discovered the sheriff would do nothing about it. And it's because he had interest in it. Now, this even goes up to one of our state representatives. And again, this is kind of, might be a sound a little boring, but I'm going to put it all together for you. Um, so we have a state representative who is also involved in this. And what I discovered is that to get a, to, to springboard your political career uh, in this county and probably around the state, you have to either sit on the board of directors for this uh, um, nonprofit or help them in some way or shape you know, or form. And that's when I discovered that, so we have the sheriff, we have a legislator, we have county commissioners, so we have, and we have judges. Judges sat on the board. I actually did a story a few years ago that exposed a judge who was sitting on the board of directors for the Don Center, 
while the advocates for this shelter had free office space in the county courthouse, they were, um, again, advocates for people who were heard in his courtroom, so both in civil injunctions and with criminal charges. And so here's what I, I found out. Uh, let's say a guy is facing a, a domestic, domestic battery charge, just a misdemeanor. He goes in uh, and the judge says, you know, okay, well, we're not going to put you in jail. It's a one-time offense. Let's just give you a, a year probation and you pay your, you pay your fees. Well, turns out that the fees, uh, a portion of them go to the Don Center. Okay. So you have this circle where you have the judge, the advocates, the, the alleged victim, you know, the defendant, and then it goes in the law enforcement. You have this perfect storm of, of uh, people who, you know, completely collude to support this, this shelter. So um, I kind of forgot your question when you were asking me, but. Just any knowledge that you got, like the general public wouldn't know and how it ties into this. And I think there's many aspects of this that a lot of the organizations know and that are in the topics, but I know you know a lot more and I kind of want to get some of that out for our listeners. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can really, uh, most of the information I understand deeply and closely does surround Florida and and in my area, um, and I do understand how the Duluth model works and how the and how the Violence Against Women Act, you know, the funding and that issue and the principles behind their, um, you know, their ideology, which is what right. it is, you know? right. and um, and it's all political. It's basically to to uh, de- so that they can pick and choose who they want to be elected. Um, but I did want to talk about this. The Department of Justice uh, oversees all the funding that goes to these different programs, uh, to all the shelters around the country. And then during my investigation, I discovered that there are dozens and dozens of investigations just in the last few years where they found, um, and anyone, this is all public record, you can find this very easy on the uh, Department of Justice website. And uh, let me give you an example. In Florida, a Department of Justice did an audit and they did an investigation. And they found that Gulf Coast, this is the name of the place, uh, didn't conduct a single audit of their finances for like a three-year period. So when they, um, they also determined that there were, you know, thousands of dollars that they had spent that was undocumented. Um, And that people were uh, not even the, the people working for this organization weren't even providing time, uh, time cards for the work. Uh, there's travel, there's all types of, uh, it, in essence, these organizations and just taking a sampling from the Department of Justice, they may not be conduct, committing fraud or may, maybe no evidence of it, but there's clearly a mismanagement on the highest level. And you don't hear about that in the news. And you don't see uh, people screaming and yelling about wasteful spending. So because there was absolutely no oversight. In Florida, we had something, and most states probably have this, we had something called the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And it was the, it is the, was the organization, again, a nonprofit, there's a reason for that, that it takes the money from the federal government and then disperses it to the shelters. They just... Governor DeSantis, Ron DeSantis here in Florida, just launched an investigation into that organization back in February. 
stating that they the president of the organization was making an $800,000 salary and that there were millions of dollars missing. So, um, and they were ripping off the, the shelters, the other shelters too. So that investigation is ongoing. It just began. And the reason that that even started was because the Miami Herald did a story on it last year about the enormous salary. And so this was, uh, this is just, it, it just solidifies what I have discovered on the step down, which is the same types of fraud, the same types of mismanagement are going on on every level. And this, I just want to sum up by saying the industry, the domestic violence industry, which encompasses all of these nonprofits, they can do anything they want with absolutely no oversight. And the oversight they do have uh, has a reason to keep their mouth shut. Absolutely. You know, and it seems it doesn't matter what it is under this umbrella. There is one factor that that hits the mark on every single one of these, and that's money. Mm-hmm. But it it is, you know, that's I, I heard Dr. Farrell. We asked him about why, you know, the Democrat side won't speak up more about it. And this, again, not to be political. I don't vote for anybody as long as they got our best interests at heart. I don't care what party you're at. They said one of the main reasons they won't speak out about it. So they're afraid of losing that vote. Mm-hmm. They get too much money from it. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can imagine that if you have this, listen, they have created, again, this ideology. And, and you can't really, in a lot of ways, blame the women for this. Because, I mean, everyone you, you ask, if you just ask a, a woman or a man, if you ask them, who do you think commits the most domestic violence, men or women? It, 99% of the time, they're going to say, oh, of course, men do. Um, it is just, it's indoctrinated into them from, a, from, you know, decades ago, and it's just passed down. So you have that in your mind. I mean, can you imagine if somebody came out and said, we're, we're or threatened that funding that's going to go to the only shelter for women? Um, that would be, it would, you would, you're running for office, you're not going to look too good uh, with the women's vote. Absolutely. You know, we, we saw a few years back, Harvard did a study that saw that 70% of the time that domestic violence was initiated by the woman in the study that they had and that it was 50-50. Not long after that, that study was completely deleted off their website. <laughs> I absolutely remember that study. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, people don't do their own research. It's, it's, it's similar to what we're going through right now with the, uh, with the uh, police shootings and things like that. Uh, they listen to the one side and believe it 100 percent or uh, but n- rarely do people look at their own research. Let me just tell you about the um, um, if I can remember what I was going to say. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, that slipped my mind. Go ahead and, and it'll probably come back to me. No, that's all right, my man. So, so what are the some of the challenges that you've had doing this? What are some of the risks that you have pursuing trying to uncover all of this time? It is, uh, well, my freedom is the first first thing. Um, I have, again, had death threats, people, uh, you know, even deputies calling me up. Again, I, I have a really good relationship with law enforcement here, uh, at least the deputies on the street. The, um, but yeah, death threats, my lost my business. Um, I've pretty much been slandered all over the place as far as my name. Uh, I can guarantee you that if I had to go look for a job right now, 
uh, no one would hire me. Uh, I've been blessed to be where I'm working now. But uh, uh, yeah, this is, it has really impacted my life. I've actually had a really, and I don't want to go into too much of my personal, but I've had a really hard time with my two daughters now. And so I do blame that on a lot of the, I, I've been working really hard on this investigation. And I know it's taken a lot of time out of my, uh, my free time out of my life. How bad did those allegations come against you? How, how much did people believe all of this rhetoric and these, these allegations that had came against you? Uh, I would say after, because I had the, at, at least the, the benefit of having a large audience here at the time, um, we, a, a good number of people in this area, I mean, they absolutely love what I did. They still do. Uh, I mean, I can't even go to the grocery store without somebody coming up and saying, hey, Tom, thanks for doing what you did, you know? Uh, so it's really been helpful to, to do this and have an audience. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's been devastating. And, you know, it's, um, there's a group of people, a handful of them, actually, that have a very large voice. And that's because they are connected to the politicians. And, um, you know, I, I do want to get this in here. This is actually what split my mind. One of the things that I just recently discovered, <laughs> this is just going to blow you away. Um, the, the clerk's office, like in every county in Florida, has a clerk's office, you know, a county clerk. I'm not sure if where you're at, they, they do it that way. But we have a clerk, and that clerk basically handles, the clerk's office handles all the incoming motions and petitions and the, you know, scheduling and things like that. Um, and I just discovered that the current clerk and the two clerks before him in Hernando County have been providing the full list of county judges and circuit judges, which is four or five counties surrounding the area, all of their private personal phone numbers to these advocates that work for the Don Center. Now, these same advocates who have no credentials, no, they're not employees of the state, they're not employees of the county, uh, they have also been deputized by the clerk. Now, that the reason that's important is because these same being deputized gives you the same access as an employee of the state or the clerk or county. So they can look at all everyone's private records. I mean, not to be conspiratorial, but they could also make changes if they wanted to. So they have, you know, unlimited access. Now, I thought, okay, maybe every county does this. So I contacted every county and I've spoken to every single clerk of court in the state of Florida and they're shocked. And they, some of them thought I was joking and uh, they actually cited a Florida statute, I believe it's 119, that prohibits them from providing private phone numbers to anyone. Matter of fact, most of them said that they don't even have their numbers. So there is something nefarious involved in this. And of course I knew that for the last 10, you know, eight years or so, but um, I'm going to get to the bottom of it as long as I live long enough. <laughs> so you got to be careful. I mean, you got to be careful when you start dealing with powers like this. I mean, I don't have to tell you, but guys, I mean, what we're going against is just, it's crazy because when I very first got into this, I thought that instances like this was rare, but they're not this. I mean, it's running rampant. And uh, is there any type of proposed legislation or what type of solutions could you see for what's going on, Tom? 
Yeah, there's not nothing on this front, but recently, last year, and I covered this pretty heavily, was the alimony reform, uh, which is similar. I mean, again, the majority of alimony recipients receive are, are women who receive uh, their ex-husband's money for sometimes a lifetime. And so the there were some legislators that took this up. And uh, earlier this year, the, you know, they had some hearings. And for the third time in a row, it was rejected. And in addition to the alimony in the bill, they actually wanted to add that <clears throat> the presumption of 50-50 custody for men and women when it when a couple divorces. And that was also shut down because people came to these, these committee hearings and spoke up on behalf of women's rights and domestic violence. And, uh, you know, uh, the watchdogs, you know, put the eye on these legislators. And this is Republican and Democrats. I lay that, and I'll tell you, the people that I've been, that are corrupt in this county are mostly Republican, but I don't choose sides, okay? Um, and so the, but yeah, Democrats are usually the ones that would be against it to start with. But when you find out that Republicans will roll over and, and, and uh, you know, kiss the ring as well, it's, just, it's really disturbing that you, you feel like there's just no opportunity for change. You know, and I'm going to give you the million dollar question. So you're talking about here was a shared parenting bill. There was alimony reform. It was proposed. It got shot down. Who showed up? Uh, the Women's Rights Act. And again, we're not trying to make a gender war out of it. But the, again, the million dollar question would be the very people that are affected by these things, by not having equal custody, by, by the alimony, these men. When it comes time for us to do something and show up in numbers, they don't do it. But what is it about these women groups <laughs> when when they want to keep that? I'm telling you, they show up in numbers, man. And we, we can preach until the cows come home. It seems like sometimes it's just so hard to get them to understand. Guys, You that's one thing they need to take a page out of their book. You know, and here's what I've discovered over, over several years. And, and I, I used to work with an organization where I went to D.C. And, and did a lot of lobbying with to try to get federal uh, changes to uh, VAWA, uh, Violence Against Women Act. There are, uh, you know, again, you, it, it is disappointing that men won't come together. And I'm, I think I'm going to give you uh, my reason why I think they don't. A lot of these men who become, uh, you know, angry over their situation, they're, uh, they're motivated to do something at the time, right? They, they're, they've had their life uprooted, they've lost their children, and they're broken. And they would love to come out and do some, you know, do some protesting or whatever. But in most cases, their case, I mean, their cases are pending in some kind of court. So they can't, they can't go out and talk about it. It hurts their case. And they know this, you know, the other side. Um, and then afterwards, once the court's over, once they've lost their children, it, their, their desire to, to go out and protest fades. Uh, and I think that's one reason is because they're defeated. They're, they're just in, it's, it's, you know, they're shocked at the fact that justice wasn't served, that it's unfair. They realize how unfair the system really is, and they just don't want anything to do with it. That's my perception. Uh, I've seen a lot of men do that. Really excited, not excited, but uh, motivated to go spread the word. And then at one point, it's just gone. They, they don't want to talk about it anymore. Saw some of the Migto guys. They they chimed in on YouTube and said it's because we're working to pay for the alimony. <laughs> that was a good one. That but, is 
Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but we're being serious. I mean, there's even on weekends I've seen many times where people have tried to fit the schedule and when it's time for us to show up, they're not showing up. And if we're ever going to make a change, guys got to come together. Ladies too, you know, crazy enough. I, I know that the ladies are going to think we're picking on them. But some <laughs> of our biggest supporters right here is the ladies, stepmoms, people that's been through the system and seen what their, their husband's been through. And we've, we've all got to pull together because this battle is so big. We've got some very powerful people against yep. us. I can very tell powerful people. There, there are, I would say, I have found that more women have commented on my post and agreed or, yep. you know, uh, that I really want to go to battle a lot more than men in some cases. You're right about that. Anyway, it's, it's definitely true. And, you know, I'm glad they do. Because we, we need everybody here. Uh, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. I know you was telling me a little bit before we got on here about a documentary that you're one to make. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about when that's going to come out and what you're planning on doing inside of that documentary? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and again, this is just fresh news. I mean, this is something we just uh, decided to really move forward with pretty quickly now uh, because a really, uh, I would say, I don't want to give his name away right now, but a, a very good documentary filmmaker has uh, offered to help me with this. And uh, so it'll be a really top quality documentary. It is, um, it's going to talk about everything we've discussed today, only we're going to put it into a video so people can see how it works. A lot of people are visual people, you know, reading a book's one thing, but you have to see something, right? So we are doing this documentary. I don't have a name for it yet. It's that early. Uh, we're doing the research, we're doing some shooting, interviews and things like that and as soon as i do i will get with you and let you know the uh the name of the film and give you any promotional material that we have yeah i mean and i'd like to bring you back on maybe you know next time we can have some clips and stuff like that but i mean i, I thank you so much for doing this i know that's not the easiest to work and it definitely has its challenges. I mean you could go and get on some of these other things that are going on right now and get some instinct you know, gratification, but this is something that you have to work hard. And I'm sure there's a lot of homework involved along with a lot of risk. So I really do appreciate it, my man. Hey, listen, I just want to say one thing to your, to your audience. Um, don't, if you're experiencing this, don't give up. I mean, sometimes it is a good, you, you feel like you want to, but you know, if you have children you're fighting for, just don't give up the fight. And again, like with Eric, uh, I mean, I, I commend you, Eric, on, on, holding, you know, doing the show and giving men an opportunity to come on and experts to come on and, and spread the word. So it's, it's a great thing you're doing. And also, if anyone needs to uh, contact me, I want to email me, they can do that at uh, victimshopping101 at gmail.com. And also, you can find me on Facebook at that, at that link. Um, you can also find me personally at Thomas Lemons, uh, not Tom, but Thomas. And, um, again, my book is available on Amazon. It's uh, victim shopping 101. You can find the book there and, uh, you know, I hope you get something out of it. Absolutely. Man, I appreciate you so much for coming tonight and, uh, look forward to talking to you some more in the future. If there's anything we can do, we're here for you. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us tonight. We are fighting for the rights of parents worldwide. If you want to help support our podcast and for us to continue this mission, please join us at patreon.com slash dadtalktoday. 
You will find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Clout Hub, Parlor, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, the podcast app, Google, Apple Podcasts. We're a little bit of everywhere. And guys, every time you like and subscribe, you help us continue this mission. Thank you, and we will see you next time.